one, two, three. Are you ready to go? Do you know what you're doing? Do you know what you're doing? Ladies and gentlemen, here we are, Theology on Mission Lectureship, and we're asking each other, do we this know? This is not the lectureship. This I'm is sorry, not Theology, Theology on Mission, Mission podcast. Uh, do we know what we're doing? Well, you obviously think we're doing a lectureship. What are we doing for the lectureship this year since you brought it up? Hey, uh, Soon Chan Ra, uh, esteemed professor of evangelism, urban ministry at North Park Seminary in Chicago, is going to be our lectureship. He's going to be talking about reconciliation, lament, mission, how all those things intertwine. It's going to be a fantastic time. Do we, do we even know what the dates are? I mean, I know it's the second uh, Friday, Thursday, Friday of the month of June. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly. We hope you'll be there, ladies and gentlemen, especially when, you know, Holesclaw tries to get up there and moderate again like he did last year. <laughs> wow. You mean the brilliance you were just in awe? Well, you are trying to crack a few jokes and uh, it went down. I bombed. Bombed big time. But that's okay because we've come to expect that from you and we love you for it. <laughs> well, thank you very much. So what are we talking about today, Dr. Fitch? Well, uh, this dis- the discussion, the changing, amazing culture shifts in our culture that are represented by the Me Too movement. I think it's been uh, a, a topic that's been out there, and I just feel, I just believe the church, that, that this is an issue the church has got to respond to. Absolutely. So the Me Too movement, sexual assault, violence against women, women speaking up in Hollywood, in politics, in churches, women being empowered to tell their stories. It's something that obviously you and I are big supporters of. We've Voices of women, women no longer silenced, uh, but specifically the way uh, power and sexual predatory practices have been melded together in our society and uh, have been part of the business culture, the Hollywood culture, um, and, and frankly, the medical culture and a lot of other culture. I mean, everywhere culture. And finally, it's coming out. Uh, and I just think, well, I think uh, uh, we're cheering it and we're looking for change and we're asking, how does the church engage? And this week, uh, the Me Too conversation, as well as what is the legacy of the sexual revolution, really kind of took up took it up a notch this last week um, with the story of Aziz Ansari and uh, the, the pseudonym of Grace and how their kind of um, sexual non-encounter um, has really kind of shown the extent to which, or the poverty of consensual sex, um, our sexual discourse in America, and, and not just what does violence toward women and assault mean, but just kind of unraveling. What does it even mean to, you know... To say be yes. with each other, to say, what does it mean to say yes? And is there a way to have safe sex in our culture? And so that's really Can what I we want to Can I just repeat a phrase today. you just yeah. said? The poverty of the consent culture, the consent ethic to provide a basis upon which we can engage as men, women uh, in sexuality in our culture. Right. So let me just go over a little bit what happened. So I guess I don't know exactly when the date happened, but just last week, 
um, there was a story on um, uh, kind of a feminist magazine that was reported with a pseudonym by this woman named Grace about her date that she went on with uh, the actor and the comedian Aziz uh, Ansari, and who also has his own show on Netflix. He wrote a book called Modern Romance that he wrote with a sociologist all about like romantic encounters and how it's changed. And now he's kind of the subject of his own book. Amazing. And so what has happened was is he kind of met this woman at a party um, and they didn't really hit it off, but she kind of kept kind of uh, inserting herself like in conversations at the party. Then they kind of hit it off on some common interests. So then later he kind of initiated taking her out uh, and he, you know, they came over to his place and then they went out to dinner. Uh, Then they came back to his place and, and at each stage of this date um there's a kind of this internal monologue or this narration of this woman that that there's a lot of disappointment or unmet expectations and then as they begin to engage in some sex or some you know uh preludes to sex and things like that uh you she kind of keeps narrating how she doesn't like it or it's not what she hoped for um and then she basically just spends the whole time outing him about how what a letdown and how she wasn't technically assaulted, but it was still kind of this abuse Yeah. Um, <clears throat> of which there's been two major responses. One, w- which is a lot of women saying, hey, that happens to me, too, all the time. I have I hope for some sort of intimacy, some sort of reciprocation with men when we're out and I just get nothing and they view me as a sex object. And then there's this other wave that basically says is that by a lot of feminists um, in the Atlantic and the New Yorker who say, this is not assault. This is not what we're talking about in Me Too. This is certainly there's disappointments, but you can stand up and say no to a man and leave. And so she should have done that. But then other people say, well, that's victim blaming. It's, it just goes back. And it's yeah. just this unraveling where both of them admit that this was a consensual encounter. And yet, by a certain definition. By a certain definition. And yet this actor, this entertainer, has basically been outed and kind of his career has been assassinated. We'll, we'll see if he recovers, right, for something that probably happens, you know, a million times every night. Oh, and so what's, uh, Dave, what's going on here? Well, oh, for years, for, I mean, uh, let, me, let me just put it this way. Uh, during sexual ethics class this past fall, uh, when all this Here was at Northern happening. Seminary, non-plug, plug for Northern, Northern Seminary. Seminary. Okay, I, sorry. I basically provocatively argued the one place where consent can mean consent is when we say it in front of about 50 witnesses. Okay? And, and so what I'm getting at there is, is that the formative practice of Christian marriage uh, basically is the only place where a space of mutuality, I'm going to have to clarify that one because there's a lot of people who do not believe Christian marriage is mutual. They believe it's patriarchal. I don't. I actually believe the opposite, Ephesians chapter 5. But having said that, uh, it's the only place, this place where we say I do before 50 witnesses, or I don't know how many were at your wedding, but about 100, 150. I'm saying 150 for us to. But it's the only place where we are formed out of power into mutuality, uh, where we admit we don't know what we're doing when we say, I do, but we say it before other people because we commit to something that is much bigger than ourselves, the vocation of marriage that God has ordained since creation. And so I'm going to start with that. Now, uh, I got a lot of pushback in class. All right, can you roll that back really quick? So you're basically saying 
consent is only truly consent within marriage. But can you go back? Why do people look for consent when engaging in sex? Like, what? Why? Why is that the norm for our society? Consensual because sex, the age of consent. W- w- what is going on here? What's well, what's the, the be- backdrop? Well, we know where this comes from. You know where it comes from. I know where it comes from. It comes from this guy named Immanuel Kant. K K A N T. I mean, I think I, some of our listeners are like, I didn't know it I came from Kant. Blame him for everything. <laughs> But it's this idea that I need to make up my own mind and nothing is really legit unless I have committed to it personally, independently, as an independent mind. It's the idea that any action is right as long as it doesn't violate the rights of someone else. And so as long as we consent, if two parties consent on a mutual course of action or an exchange of goods and services, if they both consent, then it... If it's not breaking any other laws, then therefore it's yes, good and the right. Yes, the categorical imperative, uh, you know, do unto others. Uh, 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 please help me. Yeah, you're the one who teaches. No, I'm the one who teaches ethics. How to uh, I forget how to say it, but it's the idea that uh, there can be no principle, there can be no truth, there can be no ethical moral precept that cannot be universalized according to everybody. So basically, he says, don't treat other people as means to an end, uh, to your own personal ends, but as human persons, ends unto themselves. And so that that's a lot of moral weight to bear on consent. Can anybody actually do that? Can I even say that I'm in this room with you right now because I have your best interest at heart? Yeah, probably not, actually. <laughs> Ouch. That hurt. So so this is the basic core consensual ethic and what it's turned into, if I can be so blunt, is it, it's turned into a bunch of people uh, trying to get consent any way possible for the sake of getting consent so they can achieve their own uh, gratification, their own purposes. It's almost the opposite of Kantian uh, consent. But I will say this, Kant, uh, his ethic has been proven fallacious and incapable of delivering for now... Uh, at least since Alistair McIntyre after virtue. we got to have the virtue to be able to ask for consent. Okay, we're getting way too complicated. Let's get back to the subject. All right, so what, what, what is being exposed then in this, in this episode? Both um, adults were engaged in some sort of consensual act. The woman feels disappointed, felt objectified and abused. Uh, and now the man probably feels objectified and abused also just because he's a celebrity, just because maybe he didn't deliver in bed and wasn't as sensitive as he could have been. Now he's being outed um, on the same terms as like a, a Harvey Weinstein and things like that, who himself says that he has never engaged in sex that wasn't consensual. So it, so the question is, is does this is this framework working for us as a society? Yeah, well, um all right, I, I want to talk about, well, first of all, can I just caveat here a little bit because I got a lot of pushback in class at Northern Seminary when I said this because some people, you know, first of all, we're pushing back on a lot of the hierarchical, patriarchal, abusive practices of husbands towards wives, and therefore consent cannot solve that problem in and of itself. Actually, if we had proper, better formational practices into marriage, my contention is true Christian marriage uh, is the um, the forming of male and female into a mutual uh, relationship 
for the purposes of God in their lives. Call it sanctification. Call it marriage and for mission and, and all the other things that God calls us to into his vocation in marriage. So I am not endorsing that once you get married, the man can do whatever he wants and call it abuse. The woman doesn't cooperate. I'm not endorsing that the woman uh, is the man's uh, you know commodity to be used for his own sexual gratification just because they got married. What I am saying is marriage properly done by the church, frankly, hasn't always been this way in, in the church. But marriage properly done and taught creates the space for mutuality and true consent where we before God become one and a new space for his work in our lives is, is uh, birthed. So I just wanted to put that caveat out there. But now let's talk about uh, three things that, that uh, happen um, um, that get exposed in the Me Too, in the Harvey Weinstein, in the Aziz Ansari uh, problem. And one is that you consent cannot be extracted from power relationship. Uh, and that power often becomes the means to attain consent under false premises or coerced premises. And so I think... Uh, uh, a woman named Sarah Rooney responded on my Facebook page, which, by the way, is Fitchest. I don't have any room, more room for friends, but I'm, I got to do something about my Facebook page. Come on and follow me, and I'm going to try to sort it out. But anyways, she says, women have negotiated patriarchy because they are too socialized in the normalization of male superiority and entitlement. They're taught that their validation comes from male attention. Women have navigated such a system in ways that have made them complicit in the uh, ongoing nature of male patriarchy. And so you just can't say just because a woman says consent that maybe the culture has not allowed for a woman to be abused in the act of that consent. What do you say about that, Jeff Holesclaw? I think this is the, the, the coming home to roost of kind of things unleashed in the sexual revolution. I think there's a lot of good... Uh, empowerment and freedom that women achieved, which is good. Uh, but what happened when we basically just say, hey, adults should just be able to make love without any consequences, without consequences of children, without consequences of having ongoing relationships and things like that. That sounds like a good thing to people who want to get out from underneath the thumb of like an oppressive patriarchy or some sort of Christian ethic or something like that, which is the motivation for you know free love and things like this. But what I think we're all realizing now is basically, but the underlying power structure uh, hasn't been changed. And so now men can manipulate uh, consent out of women. Um, and now it's actually worse. Uh, in one sense, this is kind of like the new Jim Crow, but for sexual revolution. Uh, a lot of people said, well, in slavery, uh, African-Americans could only be abused and killed by their slave owner. But after emancipation with Jim Crow, now African-Americans were abused and killed by all white people. And so in one sense, it sounds like a good thing, but now you're oppressed by this kind of ambiguous kind of ethic. And I think the same thing is happening now with consent is before, you know, th there were constraints on male domination and power. And now in one sense, there are none. Right. Um, and but so so now we're in this horrible place where consent can still be abused. And so what you're saying, I think, is, right. is true. Right. And I... I uh I think that um, connection between how power, culture, the hearts of human people are all melded and shaped and culturated by a power of culture. And if you don't deal with a cultural shift, the, I mean, excuse me, if you don't deal with a cultural uh, poison, uh, nothing's going to change just by changing 
I mean, not nothing is not going to change, but certainly um, uh, in the case of civil rights, there was some positive legislation, but the underlying social structures, cultural issues, the sin and poison of racism was never really dealt with directly on. And so we have those same power relations manifested in other, even more insidious ways. Now, I agree with you, uh, and I don't want to get too complicated, but the consensual, the ethics by consent sexual culture has done the same thing. It, it, it really works, ironically, to absolve men of the power relationships, the, the power relations they use to extract consent from women. And they play on women's vulnerabilities within this socioeconomic culture. You know, women need jobs. They need their bosses to like them. They feel vulnerable in their jobs. They work for men. Uh, that's just one example of many of how women are subjugated into power relationships that haven't changed since, you know, who knows when. And I've argued all this is what makes the Harvey Weinstein possible who says, I have never had non-consensual sex with any woman. He doesn't realize just getting... And he a, believes that. He of believes course that. he believes it. And so this is why we need to reshape and help people to re-understand what God has done to reshape the relationship between men and women, between genders. And it's got us... And this is the time for the church to do it. And I... And, and, Maybe this is what we should leave to the end of the podcast, but there are at least two or three ideas I've got for how the church can lead in the reshaping of this culture for the kingdom of God. All right. Well, you had like two other points before we get to these constructive, or do we cover them already? Uh, no, but I do want to mention all papers there. Yeah, I do want to mention this uh, article by Caroline Norma, an ABC Religion and Ethics. Uh, blog, or, or it's actually more like a magazine, November 29th, November uh, 2017. I urge you just to Google it. Sexuality and Consent, Protecting Women Demands Better. That's the title of the article. Sexuality. You put uh, it on. We'll get, a, we'll get it in the show notes. Caroline Norma. Uh, but but it's, a, it's a, a feminist account of how consent really doesn't do the job. Okay, so uh, my second point was really... Uh, that mutuality. Uh, so, so power is when we come together in marriage, we give up power. Why? Because we come before the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and submit to Him. And we only get married out of reverence for Christ. Remember the heading before the marriage piece in Ephesians chapter five: "Submit yourselves one to another." in reverence, out of reverence for Christ, his lordship over us. So that deals with, so that's the shaping of a new power relationship under his lordship where we mutually submit one to another. So the second piece of this is in marriage, we are able to make space for a new mutuality. It doesn't mean that there are no gender differences. It doesn't mean that there aren't even gender roles, although frankly, um, our complementarian friends have hardened those roles into a cultural construct of about 50 years ago. I won't go into that. But the fact is we allow to mutually uh, um, uh, speak into each other's lives, serve one another, die for one another, submit to one another. And out of that space, and it's so true of the church too, but out of that space God uses us to become one and to minister and grow each other in Christ. That mutuality is not possible apart from Christ. That mutuality is, that kind of consent is not possible outside of marriage. Do I sound like a fundamentalist right now? No, 
I mean, I think some people will view it that way as some sort of us talking about a retrograde sexual ethic, but uh, but that's okay. Uh, because so we because have, we're talking about power, we're talking about mutuality, but what's the last one? Is uh, it, uh, before I get to the last one, just to address what you just said, some people will see it as a retrograde something. Sexual ethic, Christian uh, moralism. Yeah, uh, I just want to say... No, it's not. <laughs> I would okay. say it's the most. It could be the more radical option now is to say, "Hey, the most empower, the most empowering thing, empowering thing we can do for young women is tell them to be celibate." And the most um, humbling and um, way to debate, not to debase, but the, the the way that men can serve and to give up the power of patriarchy is to be celibate before marriage. Like, are those radical statements that women can be empowered by being celibate? This gets and to what men can practice humility and give up patriarchy by being celibate. That's yeah, a radical statement. That is a radical statement. Um, it gets to uh, Hauerwas's, you know, famous dictum uh, call. He calls me. Marriage is a subversive political act. Okay. Marriage is a subversive political act which undermines our culture's politics of I got to get my needs taken care of first and that it's all about me. Instead, we enter into a new space of marriage, and I believe it's only possible. I don't expect non-Christians to be able to pull this off. In other words, without Jesus, be married in this particular way. There are a lot of good marriages, according to some uh, categories of good, but I don't believe the kind of thing we're talking about is possible outside of Christ. So, yeah, here's where we deal with the power relationships of culture and Christian marriage. Here's where we deal with mutuality and the shaping of a politics of mutuality. You, you realize I'm calling marriage a politics? No one's going to understand out there why I say that, but <laughs> we can't explain it now. The last thing is we don't know what we're doing when we say, I do. It's a vocation. Uh, that goes, that has happened. You know, marriage was not invented the minute, you know, like, don't you love when people come into your office before doing a marriage and say, we want to make up our vows. Mm -hmm. No, actually, uh, marriage is not, was not just invented when you and you decided you love each other and want to create a whole new thing called marriage or I want to express my undying love, blah, blah, blah. No, marriage is a vocation to be lived out first and then all that other good stuff can happen later. And so we really don't know what we're doing. We really don't understand, especially if we're getting married when we're 20, like however old you were. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but the grace of God and his perseverance in our lives is what we depend on and we enter into. And really, so this is why... Um, I got married when I was... 22, and we're going on almost 18 years, so amen. Amen, and I married... Uh, we married uh, the same year. No, I married a year. You got married in 90... Married, we're married like six years apart, six months apart. You're at the married. end of 99, is at the beginning of 2000. Okay, so I'm I'm a more experienced person in marriage. But you were 22 years you. older than me. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, okay, the point is we don't know what we're doing, so this is really not about a personal choice, consent in the end. It's about a mutual submission. It's a submission to Jesus as Lord. I'm following you in obedience and faithfulness to the call to be a husband, to be a father if God gives children, 
and to be um, part of something that's going to do ministry in the world. You got anything to say to that? That's my last of the three. Um, marriage overcomes the power relationship in consent that so pollutes our consent ethic in the world. Marriage overcomes the lack of mutuality and, and, and the patriarchy that poisons consent and the power relationships again and creates this mutuality. And then lastly, in the end, we don't know what we're doing when we get marriage. It's really a submission to Jesus as Lord to obey and follow him in the vocation of marriage. Well, so I want to sum up then, uh, as we're getting to the end of our uh, show here, by talking about something that you bring up in in your sexual ethics class, which is is that there is no safe sex outside of marriage, and th- so and this is a way of kind of subverting this kind of lingo that comes out of the sexual revolution, which is, um, well, since you're going to do it, you know, this is like parents telling their children, well, since you're going to you know, engage with sex with, with strangers or girlfriends and boyfriends or, or whatever when you're in college. Just make sure it's safe. Like, make sure you're safe. And that's both for the men and for the women, you know, and usually that just means, like, you know, have contraception. Like, make sure you're not getting people pregnant and things like that. Um, but I think what, what now is being shown is that in this, you know, instance between Grace and Aziz is that, well, safe sex is more complicated than that because women, not just women, but men and women, you know, are looking for emotional, relational connection. They're looking for intimacy. Uh, And I think especially women are saying, and if we're not getting that intimacy, then we're not going to have sex. Uh, And and I think that's good. Um, And then men men are finding out, as Aziz did, is, you know, if you're just in it for the sexual act and you're not caring about any intimacy, then all of a sudden you'll find out that that encounter is very unsafe for you because you're going to get outed as a user maybe not as an abuser but as a user you're just using these women to kind of gratify these things so sex is not safe for you and you're going to get outed and i think this is overall a good thing is that sex is not really as safe as we thought it was even if you have condoms on even if you're on the pill and things like that and so what we're saying is is yeah safe sex is not safe it's dangerous it's it's difficult it's damaging outside of marriage uh and so call us retrograde maybe we'll call ourselves radical but you know, can we be celibate if we're not married? And then can we mutually submit and seek the good of uh, our spouse if we're married? Can yeah. we practice safe sex? And, and this gets to my last and final point for this uh, podcast. Because you're, you're a little... Um, I'm, I'm 95% with you. Uh, um but I'm afraid people are going to hear you and hear your more uh, legalistic side or whatever you want to call it. This is not about legalism. This is about shaping a culture, a church that can lead people into God's purposes for their lives, uh, sexually and in every other way. And, you know, we've had, we've had a, I've got a, I know you've, you've got two boys. I got, a 12-year-old boy, and our culture is just insidious in training him to think about women uh, as objects. They're trained into what I'll call the society's male gaze. And, and inescapably, women, girls, have been trapped within this male gaze, and we're getting the ramifications of it now. And so I'm, I'm saying, praise the Lord. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say praise the Lord. I'm saying this is a good thing. 
this Me Too is the first of many revealings of the of the sad underbelly of a sexualized culture aligned with power. And the question is, once all these injustices are being revealed like they are now, are we just going to morph into a kinder, gentler, more acceptable misogyny? Or, or are we going to reshape? Are we going to take the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, that the gospels freed us from being sexual predators, for using our power to abuse and getting, quote, our needs met? Are we, are we going to be able to reshape people's imaginations for what marriage can be, the new possibility in Christ? We have um, huge systems in place in this culture that stay in place, that run billions and billions of dollars that commodify women, commodify sex, propagate um, um, pornography, a thin sexual ethic. Every day my kid has to watch, he doesn't have to, but it's pretty hard to keep him insulated, if, especially since he goes to public school, from the garbage. Oh, now I'm getting. Now I'm starting to sound like you. From the from the <laughs> unfortunate crap that is being pulverized on his mind daily. How are we going to reshape our children to see the new possibility of renewal, healing, and then all the people that have become victims of this mess? Can the church be a healing and redeeming space for sexual healing in our culture? I believe yes. Uh, we can't probably go into it in this podcast because it's podcast is what you've got some predetermined length that we can only go. But you can take a sexual ethics course at Northern Seminary by signing up on the Northern Live MATM. Amen. Um, amen to everything I just everything said. Everything the to, MATM. Amen to everything you just said. <laughs> um, I would love to hear from all of you listeners on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, are we're we, all in this battle, man. That's we, what I'm saying. We all, all us men, all us women, we are in this struggle for sexual righteousness. And um, Ooh, I like that. Okay, sexual, this is the question for us. Sexual righteousness, is it retrograde or radical? That's the question we got to put out there. We'd love to hear from all of you listeners on Facebook and Twitter. But the challenge for all our pastors is how do I lead my church to talk about this, open up space? You're telling me we got to? All right. I'm I, asking if you got a pen. I got to write that down before I forget it. I don't have a pen. All right, pen. keep going. Let's wrap it up. I, so, hey, are you got a last thing? Are you going to say it again? Or are we, are we you good? broke my All right, we're in. We're in. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. We're going to do a quick Fitch versus Fitch just, just because. Are you ready? On Facebook, you recently said, the gospel of evangelicals is a gospel for control freaks. Dave Fitch, you're an evangelical, so are you calling yourself a control freak? No. No. Um, I've, I've, I've known you for I've, a while. I I've think gotten, maybe, maybe I've, it fits. I've gotten saved. You've been saved, saved from being control from the, freaky? From the gospel of control freaks, which says, I got a problem. I'm going to hell. Here's how you solve the problem, and I remain in control. The gospel is Jesus is Lord. He has been made Lord of the world, and he is bringing this world to its proper conclusion, the mission of God for the renewal and reconciliation of all things in him. And uh, the question is now, will I enter in and become part of it? That's the gospel. And um, The gospel is not about a problem. It's about a person. The gospel is about Jesus and 
his lordship over our lives and all he's doing in and through us and around us and will we participate. That's a glorious gospel. That's not an individual gospel only, but it does impact me hugely as an individual. It's not a social gospel only, but it is intensely social in what God is doing in the world to renew the world. Speaking about the social gospel, our next episode, stay tuned, is going to be about the gospel and economics and individuals and what does it mean for society, playing off of uh, some contemporary uh, tweets that have been going around. So stay tuned for that. This is Jeff Holsclaw. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Holsclaw. This is Dave Fitch. You can find him at Fitchist on Twitter. F-I-T-C-H-E-S-T, one word. Thanks for everything. We'll talk to you soon. See you next time.